Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. And I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, Lori. How are you doing today? I'm great, Tom. And you? I'm doing just fine. It's sunny and cold in Chicago, which is kind of what it should be this time of year. Um, we always start with the weather, and the weather feels just right with the world, at least in, in my neck of the woods. How, how's, how's Dallas? It's the opposite here. It's cloudy and humid. So, But we're supposed to be getting some nice weather, like 75 and sunny um, this weekend, so I'm looking forward to that. That sounds good. Um, and maybe that's a good way to, uh, to bring in our guest this week. Joining us from uh, Missoula, Montana, we have Robin McLean. Um, Robin, how's, how's the weather in Missoula? It's a bit cloudy today, but it's been sunny and warm and beautiful fall with uh, mushroom hunting weather. So I've been out in the mountains up at Lolo Hot Springs um, hunting for chanterelle mushrooms, and we just got about 35 pounds of them the other day. 35 pounds? I know. Isn't that crazy? That's that's wild. Yeah, that's not even a tall tale. That's true. <laughs> that's a lot of mushrooms. I love mushrooms. I need to come visit you. Well, come on up this weekend, and I'll we'll cook you up some chanterelles, and we can go up to Glacier National Park and go Highway to the Sun and uh, cruise around, look for grizzly bears. <laughs> that all sounds amazing, and uh, kind of a kind of kind of your. Your your dream life, I feel like Robin. Like that seems like kind of the like what I imagine you getting up to on, on the weekend. I have to say. Yeah, well, you know, I don't. I like to be uh, unpredictable sometimes, but most of the time, you know, go walking in the woods, walk with my dogs, have fun, and that's what I've been doing. Reading the rest of the time, pretty much. That's fantastic. Well, to give a, a bit of a quick intro to our listeners who may not know you, and they should, but in case they <laughs> don't. Um, Robin is a uh, writer. Um, she has uh, three books out. Reptile House was her first collection of stories from Boa Editions, right? Yep. And then Robin and I got to know each other um, from her next two books uh, when I was working for End Other Stories, and uh, her novel, Pity the Beast, came out. Followed up by uh, her story collection, um, <laughs> Get Him Young, Treat Him Tough, Tell Him Nothing, which is one of the great titles, I think, in in recent memory. <laughs> yeah, uh, Lori had Robin on uh, her other podcast, Across the Pond. Um, twice. Twice. Twice, and in the store, too. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm a big admirer of Robin's work, <laughs> and um, that's kind of why we asked her to Come on today, Tom, because we're familiar with what Robin can do, and it's always interesting to talk to a a good writer and find out what work they admire. So it kind of fit right into our backlist uh, recommendation segment. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there are too many um, great writers that aren't also really interesting at the very least readers. Um, I think that's the those things kind of go together, kind of one feeds the other. So um, Robin, you suggested that we read and chat about Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silco. Um, so yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about why, why Ceremony in particular jumped out at you? Um, maybe your first interactions with it, how you 
feel or how those feelings have or haven't changed over time. And then we can kind of bust into the the larger conversation about this absolutely wild, truly, truly fantastic uh, novel. Well, I came to the book slowly because it was one of those books that people had told me about. A, a number of people had mentioned this book and we all have these in our lives. So people say, oh, you need to read that book and you kind of have it on your list or you you see it in the bookstore and you say, I'll buy that next time. Or um, It was one that I knew about and didn't read for a long time, but it came to me through people whose reading I trust a lot, which is pretty much how I find books. Um, and I read it in the desert um, of Southern Utah, which is very, very close to New Mexico, um, Arizona, the not super far from the location of the book itself. And uh, I read it at a time when my my dad was really sick. I was with my dad when I read it. Uh, so it's it's a very, very it's not a light read. <laughs> I can say that. I always I always like uh I always tell people that I like books that blow my mind, that pretty much I only read books that blow my mind. And this is a book that really, really blew my mind. And I read it outside a lot of the time. I was sitting under a tree in the desert a lot of the time. Uh, I read it quite quickly, but moving from place to place. And uh, it was a book that answered some questions, or at least dove deeper into some questions about life and how do you deal with pain and how do you deal with a world that's very confusing and seemingly utterly broken and not fixable, something that I think about a lot. And I also, I think I write about, but it was a book that I felt answers the question of why we read. Um, we read to find some answers to our life's perplexities. And, uh, so that, that's how I, I arrived at the book. And, um, so it's one that's sort of sat in my mind since then and has given me some edification <laughs> since then. And I'm in Montana now. So when, when you guys asked me this question, I'm in a place that's dealing actively with Native American history and reparations and justice and the environment. This is, I teach one of my classes at the university right now in the Native American Center where I can hear drumming sometimes upstairs and I'm, I'm going up into the mountains to pick mushrooms where Lewis and Clark went through with Sacagawea and the story of the people who helped these explorers. It's just everywhere around me right now. And, and last night I just saw, um, not that it's related to how I chose the book, but last night I saw Robin Wall Kimmerer on campus and heard her speak about braided sweetgrass. I'm just infused with these questions. I've been up in Canada for the last six months on the Salish Sea and traveling around BC, dealing with seeing how British Columbia is dealing with First Nation issues. So anyway, some of the stuff that came to me more directly through this book has also re-entered my life sort of on the ground 
And I just think it's an important book. I just think everyone should read this book if they can, which not everybody can. It's a hard book. Some people read for things other than answers to life. It's not a book for entertainment. Uh, but for me, it's a life-changing book. It's a turning the corner book. Uh, nothing is the same after this book. It's a book that stylistically opens many doors for writers. Um, Leslie Mormasilko did things in this book that give you permission. And so from a writer's perspective, it's a, it's a book about liberty too. And uh, so anyway, that's kind of how I arrived at it. Robin, have, had you read any or have you read any other books by her? I had not. And I still have not, although I, I'm ashamed to say that. And having it back in my hands again, uh, I probably will. And I've spent quite a bit of time in New Mexico. And one of my very close friends in New Mexico knows her and went to school with her. And um, just that proximity is, is sort of, uh, my makes me vibrate a little bit. It's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I In the edition that I have, I think, which is a anniversary edition, um, there's a there's a preface by Larry McMurtry. And of course, Larry McMurtry is a, a great legend in Texas letters. Um, and I think he knew her personally, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so that, that instantly intrigued me, but you know, I really knew nothing about the book. I knew that she was a native American writer, but I, I understand what you're saying about the fact that it's kind of a, it's it's kind of a change book, a turning the corner book, because there there doesn't seem to be outside of the the Native American context, which is unique in and of itself, especially given that this book was written in I think 1977 initially and published. Um, and we've had, thank goodness. Um, quite a surge in Native American authors in the United States, I feel like in the last three years or so, uh, books published, fiction published by them. But some of the themes in this book are so very um, universal that it's it's a little hard for me to kind of pinpoint or articulate kind of what makes the magic of this book. Um, but the the feelings that she brings forth, the main character, of course, is a, um, is a veteran, um, and has PTSD. I, I don't know whether they knew to call it that, uh, at the time that the narrative is taking place, but today I think we would certainly call it that, um, and a very serious case of it at that. Um, it's, it, it's so emotionally powerful. Um, and I wondered whether you had any thoughts as to how she does that. Well, of course, I've been thinking about that a lot because uh, I read it, reread it recently to refresh myself and speak with you guys. <clears throat> I'm teaching writing right now to really skilled writers, so I'm always looking for how masterful works are achieved. And I feel like she does two things that I noticed right off the bat. And one of them is that she sticks to objects very closely. <laughs> you know, this very, very devout attention to objects and movement, objects and movement um, down on the ground and very uh, 
attentive observation to the natural world. So there's that. And you think about Cormac McCarthy, like if, if he, this is very much in the line of, of that kind of Western writing that's very much tactile and dusty and dirty. The other thing I, I'm mesmerized by this book is how she moves with those line, the uh, section breaks. She moves so freely through time with those section breaks and, and, and uh, it's not just through time, it's through mental space and uh, philosophical space. She, she does what fiction can do that no other art form does. And, and to the most vast degree. Um, and I think that that's sort of saying this is how, how this spiritual life of, of First Nations or Indigenous thought works. We can make these jumps that don't um, depend on this linear logic, and you will see the logic by jumping with me. I will show you a different type of logic through these jumps. And so those are the two first things that come to mind. And then, of course, the language is gorgeous, beautiful, beautiful language. And the unsparing brutality of her depiction, she just doesn't spare us at all. We, we must look at it and then enter into uh, the main character's despair completely <laughs> to this suffering degree and then uh, seek, seek the answer as much as he does. So that's more thematic. And then the free use of of story and poetry and the fantastical. It's just the most liberated book that I can think of. And it creates a mind space that's bigger because of it. It's an enormous mind space. And if we read for that mind space, it's explosive. Uh, so I don't know if that answers what you're saying. I, I think, I think it certainly did in a lot of ways. And I hate, to use this term because it doesn't really feel applicable, but it, it, it feels like a very meta book to me in a way, because it talks, the narrative talks about storytelling and the oral storytelling tradition amongst um, Native Americans and particularly the people in, in this tribe. But, um, but then the the way that she writes the story going from going from prose to kind of verse and the verse is kind of you can imagine i could every time she switched to verse i could hear you know someone speaking this orally to me much more so than if i'm just like reading a poem so there is a lot in this book i think just about how to tell a story and the integrity of a story. And like you said, the different ways that a story doesn't have to be linear or logical to make it a very, a very valid and, and equally important story to tell. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, she's saying, I'm going to show you a different way to think about story. Another different result from getting a story thinking of story as a healing act which is certainly how I think about stories I just not didn't necessarily think of it that way before this book that we are in on this ceremony uh 
and that humans need ceremony and that story is 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 a, is medicine story as medicine well, and that story is also what's trapping people too the the free movement in time um there's a moment uh towards the end of the novel where teo um our protagonist is he dwells on how the old men always refer to things as being in the present, whether it's in the future, a future event, or whether it's a past event, that everything is pr- is present time. And in a way that is reflecting on his, you know, I think they call, I think Laurie, they called it battle shock um, back in uh, the forties and early fifties. They certainly, <laughs> I, I don't think they would, yeah, they would use post-traumatic stress disorder would be something that they would probably run like run for the hills from, right? Um, as a term, but I mean, his PTSD was keeping him present. He was, he was at home, um, on the ranch, but he was also in the jungle and he was also constantly hearing his cousin brother, um, have his head smashed in that, that presenting was trapping him until he was able to put it alongside the other presence he was existing within. And yeah, that, that healing act, I think is, there's the there is that yeah the metatextual level of her playing with how it can be presented but also reflecting and really i think making the reader feel teo's pain and teo's terror at all times that he would once again wake up and and find himself back in that place cuz he would cuz he never left the place and even by the end of the novel he hasn't left the place there are just other places he can exist in at the same time that he can that he can be a part of, which is a really interesting and I think honest and true way of looking at healing, that it isn't like what came before is wiped away. It's just that it's put into a different, a different perspective, a different scale. It's an incredibly touching, I mean, it's, as you said, Robin, it's, it's hard. Like it's not an easy novel to, like you, I kind of raced through it. Um, I read it very quickly, uh, and like you, I also moved around a lot in the process because I felt like I was—I just—I couldn't stop reading it, but I couldn't stay in one place. I had to—I had to keep it, keep going, um, and physically had to keep moving around. It's stunning. Like I, I just—I—I'm I, still wrapping. <laughs> and I think this speaks to like the idea of it being a things aren't the same after novel. Um, I'm still wrapping my head around so many of the things that that occurred to me as I was reading it. And so many of the, I mean, there's, there's an entire critique of, you know, Western culture running through this. That is at once incredibly steering and at the same time, incredibly forgiving of everyone involved in it, um, which is a, a hell of a trick to pull off, I think. Well, and that's how I feel like in some ways, that's how the, the ending works is to see evil or some bad thing and to walk away (laughs) to see it recognize it acknowledge it know it deeply and then walk away (laughs) from it rather than fight it um and i think that's something that this novel offers that other westerns i've read don't necessarily offer so an actual solution which I was not expecting, I mean, whether you accept the solution or not, I, I think I appreciated it, but I, but I think back to what you're saying about this, the present and 
time the the chasing of the cows soothes that it brings him into the present and then the idea that his brother cousin uncle are with him now this sort of realization and the peace that comes with this and the idea of I, I don't know it's just sort of a tidal wave but it, it, it accrues it it you, you know as a writer has to make lay the ground for what's going to happen later in the novel and you can see how she's doing it uh on the second or third read but um it's quite it's quite something because you you it sneaks up it's it's set the ground is set you don't it's sort of like the, the cattle going down into the arroyo. You, you have to go where she wants you to go, but you don't see it. You know, the turn at the bottom, you don't, you can't see where you're going. It's, it's such a tightly constructed novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, to the extent that it, it, it's even following some tropes and you, you, you just referred to it as a Western and I wouldn't immediately jump to, it wouldn't jump to mind as a Western in terms of how you would traditionally think of a Western novel. I mean, it's obviously set in New, the New Mexico, largely New Mexico. I don't think they ever really dipped too far over um, the state boundary. It does follow a lot of the movement of a traditional Western, um, so much so that at the end of the novel, as Teo is put into a pretty perilous situation, he recognizes the way the story is supposed to end. I mean, he's told that the story is supposed to end a certain way but it's your choice to not let it happen. And she keeps us going, thinking that it's about to go in a certain direction. This is the direction it should go. And then pulls back at the end because that's not what needs to happen. And that's not what Teo ought to be doing. And yeah, just being able to control the narrative in that manner is you know, incredible. I mean, she was, I think, what, 29 when this was published. Um, this is her first novel. I mean, she had a she had some stories out pre, uh, prior to this and a collection of poems um, about, I think, two years before this um, were published. But this is, I mean, this is a debut novel. I mean, Lori, at some point, we need to stop reading debut novels because I think we're spoiling ourselves for future writers. But. Well, we say the same thing. I mean, we sound like broken records about, I can't believe this is a debut novel. Um, but we've we've had some stunners, and this is included. And, and or I, I say something along the lines of, um, I, can't, I can't believe I haven't read this yet. And I mean- this is one that I've sold dozens of over the years. You know, it was it, it is a perennial backlist title. It 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 moves without you having to do anything, which is great sometimes. But it was just never one that quite popped up on my radar enough, or I didn't make enough time for. And you know, that's fine. Books come to you sometimes when when they're supposed to. And I feel like this was a good time for me to encounter to encounter this one. There's a lot thematically to dig into with this novel, but it's probably worth giving like a very quick or my attempt, uh, my usual attempt. This is a a thing, Robin, we do where I attempt to give a quick synopsis of the novel. And then 20 minutes later, we look up and realize that I haven't even wrapped it up yet, but I'll try and be faster. Um, As we said, this is following a um, World War II vet uh, named Teo. Um, he's from the Laguna Pueblo Reservation uh, tribe, and he and his uh, cousin brother, he was raised by his aunt, and he and his and Rocky, um, his cousin, are the same age and pretty much grew up as brothers, enlisted at the same time, uh, were sent to the Pacific Theater, 
and uh, were captured and took part or, or forced into the what was called the Bataan Death March. And along the way, Rocky, um, who was badly injured when they were captured, either dies on the stretcher or he dies when a Japanese soldier um, bashes his head in with a rifle because they can't carry him any further. Um, and when Teo gets back, he is very fundamentally broken. <clears throat> he spends time in a uh, VA hospital and returns to the ranch, returns to the reservation and is, I mean, barely there, is attempting, frequently uses the term invisible to refer to what he's trying to be. He's trying to disappear. Um, he interacts with some other um, uh, young men his age that he grew up with that also went to war. Um, all of them have massive drinking problems. Um, all of them are very, despite on to the exterior seeming like they're attempting to be happy and carefree, all are badly, badly wounded by the experience. Um, and not just the experience of going to war, but the experience of being being treated in the United States as heroic while they were in uniform, while the war was going on, by um, by being sought after by women, um, by specifically white women um, during that time. And now they're once again, you know, once again, they're Indians. Once again, they're being pushed off to the side. Um, and so this is this novel is really about Teo's journey towards, I mean, on certain levels towards healing. Um, while he was in the jungle, uh, he wished they would stop raining and he feels that he damaged that there's now a drought in their area. And he feels that this is his fault, that it's connected to him, even though very early on it's stated that droughts happen. Like this is just part of the world. It's people who have to be, who, who change and have to be able to, to adjust accordingly. And yeah, we follow Teo as he, uh, it, visits uh visits a a holy man who gives him directions to retrieve his uncle's cattle and i don't know i i could i could keep going on into even more of the specifics um there is a really harrowing scene at the very end of the novel involving um the other men from his tribe and uh some acts of extreme violence um but I think we can, I mean, we've already touched on that a little bit. I think we can kind of otherwise talk about, you know, some of the other themes that they're emerging from and kind of maybe dip into specific scenes as warranted. How'd I do, Lori? Was that, was that, was that better? Was that, that was shorter than normal. Congratulations, Tom. But Thank I think you, you did a really good job. Thank you. Um, you, you, you touched on, Tom, the, um, the, the guilt that Teo feels because he feels as though, I think as the medicine man told him, or, or maybe it was an older story that he heard growing up, that there's this fine web that the world is constructed in. And you, you can't, if you break the web, you know, it's, it's going to be horrible for the world. Um, it, it can destroy the world. So he's feeling very guilty about those prayers, for lack of a better term, when he was a prisoner of war. Um, in the Philippines that he, um, that he would pray for it to stop raining because it was constantly, you know, just, just so, so wet and like people's leg sores wouldn't heal and just a really horrible, horrible in situation. But he has a lot of guilt as well about the fact that he lets 
he lets he, he doesn't really but he feels as though he's he's let his family down because um his cousin rocky dies and and he promised before he left that he would bring rocky back and he always feels as though his auntie and his grandmother were always expecting that it would be teo that wouldn't um come home alive or wouldn't come home you know intact and instead it's it's rocky that that dies overseas and he feels a lot of guilt about that um so i guess maybe robin this is a this is a question that maybe you can help with in terms of teo's kind of mindset and the broken person that he is when he returns from war i feel like some of the the looks back at his past were kind of setting the setting the table for a real identity crisis with this kid. I mean, he's, he's half native, half white and, you know, his tribe and particularly his auntie never lets him forget the fact that, you know, his mother was a slut and, um, and he's not fully native. And, um, so he has that identity thing going, you know, Rocky is kind of like, the high school hero. He's perfect. He's an athlete. He's very good um, in school. And it's clear that he's got ambition and that people have ambitions for him, that he's he's getting off the reservation. And that's even before they're recruited by this army recruiter that doesn't really care about, I guess he's not getting paid to care, just like, you know, give me, give me bodies, give me numbers to send overseas. Um, who, you know, kind of questions, well, are you guys really brothers? And, you know, you're both on the reservation and, you know, we'll sign up because, you know, you guys are real patriots and, you know, America needs you. So I'm not asking a very good question, but do you want to talk about <laughs> maybe Teo's um, identity issues and how that kind of relates to the way he feels when he comes back from the war? Teo is as all great main characters are afflicted with terrible conflict inside himself. So I think the author spends a lot of time describing not only, you know, the pressures in his family where his, his auntie and grandmother sort of have all their hopes in Rocky, but that he had a very, very rough time before he got there. Um, there's this brutal, childhood living under the bridge and watching his mother who's a prostitute dragged away with other women and living in the grass and trying to find food and he was a uh, an abandoned little person <laughs> in great distress which possibly is the reason why he survived and rocky didn't i mean he's tougher he's very tough he doesn't view himself that way and then so you've got this do I belong in this family? Shouldn't survivor's guilt, I think you're sort of suggesting, which I think is, is absolutely true. He made this promise, but he also doesn't really want to go to war. He wants to stay and help his uncle do something that might help their people, which is to 
create this type of cow that is more like them, more um, clever on the land, knows where to find water, actively goes to seek water, helps themselves. And uh, he says that he's going to help his, his uncle and he's pulled that way. And Rocky calls him his brother for the first time at, with that recruiter. And so he's pulled between these two loves. So this love and desire to belong and to be one of some family pulls him, but he goes with Rocky and then Rocky dies. And, and then, and then if you recall, I'm sure you do after, I believe after Rocky dies, there's a firing squad of some Japanese soldiers. And during the firing squad, he sees his uncle's face. So this idea of this face that looks indigenous and the the story gets to that that 20,000 years ago they would be brothers this idea of all humans being brothers with the animals and the plants it's murdering each other for no good reason like all these things are just pulling this guy apart and in some ways these things of nuclear war which of course is touched on in this book and the Manhattan Project and the industrialized war and the horror of killing for no reason seemingly for no reason should devastate the human soul so in some ways this character thinks of himself as weaker but the fact that he reacts to these things in this way could be just an indication that he's he's feeling things accurately but he doesn't view it like that at least at the beginning the medicine man suggested to him but this, this tearing of the inside of this char- character's soul and his body, because that's what happens in the story, and seeking love. I mean, identity, love, family, home, protection of the land or the animals, all these things are balled together in this character who we certainly hope survives and that we hold on for dear life and read from tree to tree or from room to room because we're so stressed out for this guy. Yeah, it's interesting um, that you point out the fact, and it's it's so true, that Teo is, is perceiving his experience um, in a totally human way. In contrast to... Um, another guy from the reservation that was in the war emo who is kind of braggadocious and walks around with these, with this little bag of Japanese um, soldier's teeth of someone that he killed. And he, you know, he's, he's like constantly jiggling with them like dice and you feel that emo is, is broken as well, but he's broken in maybe a different way insofar as he can't, he can't like his humanity can't break through the bravado or the defenses that he's had to put up to kind of just exist. So that's a, it's an interesting distinction with the way that both men kind of experience the war and how they both came back damaged, but damaged in different ways. The suffering is so great. You could understand why emo would, have, I mean, my, my parents and grandparents had a lot of anger towards Germans and, and Japanese people. 
you can see why it would be, but, and he's got the buzz cut, the Marine buzz cut. So this is sort of affiliation with the, the, uh, the U S army or the white soldier or white culture. But Teo, his suffering, I think we are meant to understand that as, as a really strength to hold on to who he is. The suffering and his identity are tied to each other, which is a wild thing to do. I mean, I think it's also um, partially how Teo sees himself in relation to the land and to his surroundings. I mean, that's one of the the fascinating things about this book is the scale and not just in terms of time, but in terms of how, how people interact and are put right alongside of the natural world that they are incorporated. They are a part of it. They are incorporated into it, except when they're not, when they're a blight on the land. Um, when you brought up the cattle that uncle um, Josiah is attempting to breed, I mean, they make the, there's some pains to explain how the primary um, beef cattle in this area is incredibly susceptible to drought that it will, as you said, it, those cow cattle will not seek out water. They will not eat scrub to stay alive unless it's the last thing. And by then they're already doomed. So uncle Josiah wants to basically breed a Mexican cattle that is rangy, that moves, they describe as moving like antelope um, with some of the standard beef cattle to kind of produce something that will survive, but also be, you know, all that, which is something that Rocky actually shoots down. He thinks it makes no sense because it doesn't, it doesn't match what he's learning in his science books that from the white teachers, from the society that he's attempting to become a part of. So as much as Rocky is the hope of the reservation, he's also trying to run the hell away from it. Teo wants, as you said, wants nothing more but to be home there and to be a part of it. And I think that sense of scale, uh, it, it occurred to me while reading this, Robin, that that scaling, that location of humanity in the natural world, of course you recommended this book. Like that, <laughs> is, that is absolutely a part of your project as well. Like it, it is certainly an aspect of, of, of your writing um, to, and I think I this is how I used it in, um, publicity pitches was uh, you were right-sizing humans. You weren't making us giants across the land. You were putting us within within the landscape. And I think that's very much a part of what uh, Teo is struggling with here, um, what a lot of his contemporaries have given up on. I mean, Emo wants, Emo wants, he wants, he wants, he wants, he wants drink. He wants white women. He wants wealth. He wants, I mean, it's even suggested he wants to be white. Like that's part, he does, he never liked Teo and Teo thinks it's because Teo is half white. And that's the part of himself that if email could be anything, it would be that to absolutely disastrous <laughs> effects for a lot of the people around emo. Emo acquires a body count among his friends and family by the end of the novel. Um, not just Japanese soldiers. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think Teo's Teo's sense of proportionality and scale, while it is part of what's making him sick at the outset, also when he's in the hospital, the doctors are constantly trying to get him to say "I" and reflect on himself, but he is constantly saying "we" and "us." 
he's seeing himself as part of a collective, not as an individual. And that is both what makes him sick, but also what seems to, by the end of the novel, uh, save him to, to a great extent. Yeah. I mean, that, that sense of collectivity, um, what you just highlighted, Tom, for me was how Teo is psychologically more a part of the reservation than Rocky, even though, you know, all the hopes are on Rocky and he's a full-blooded Native American. There's that wonderful, and I, I just love that the scene. It's early on in the book where Rocky kills the deer. And there's all of these ceremonies that they've been brought up to observe when you when you kill an animal and you have to thank the animal for sacrificing its life for you. And so Rocky's, you know, killing and gutting the deer and, you know, they take it back and the ceremony begins and they put, I think they decorate the deer's antlers and they put blue corn mush down for the deer and say some prayers and things. And Rocky pretty much has total disdain for this, for the ceremonial part, the ceremony actually, which I guess, you know, so much of, so much of native culture, it seems is, is perhaps part of these ceremonies and, and Rocky is not into the ceremonies, but Teo certainly is. Well, and it's also the case that so often ceremony like that is also, I mean, it's, it's born out of perhaps some element of religious belief. Yeah. But it also frequently has like, I don't know, like ways to um, keep the tribe alive, you know, I mean, like ways to keep the people, it, it's healthier sometimes, like, you know, how much of dietary law across cultures that's tied into religious practice is also a way of making sure that the the meat isn't bad, that the harvest was actually good and we can eat this stuff or, or that how we treat the land allows us to have a harvest next year. And and Rocky's, ref- I mean, this is another reflection of Rocky's rejection of where he is coming from um, and where a lot of, you know, the other contemporaries that come up are Harley and Leroy um, and Pinky. Um, we don't see much of Pinky. And when we do see him, he's, I mean, for a character named Pinky to like be as unmemorable as he is until he's not is pretty impressive, I think, as far as a a craft and storytelling level. But yeah, they also are rejecting a lot of what comes with that um, comes with being part of of the people that they're that they're from. Um, but on the top, I mean, I we probably should spend a little bit of time talking about ceremony and the conception of ceremony, given that it is rather the title of the, of the novel. Um, one of the, I think, interesting things that gets brought up and um, is put across a Teo is that ceremony is supposed to evolve, that it doesn't stay static in time, that as things change, the ceremonies must change along with it. And there seems to be and I'm always very, I'm very ambivalent, or I mean, probably a better word is nervous about ascribing too much of what characters think or put across in a novel to what uh, a writer thinks. Because, you know, sometimes it's just simply this is, this is the mind of the character and it really is just that. 
but there does seem to be a bit of a critique of, um, or at least in Teo's mind, it develops a critique of how ceremony, how um, religious practice has become a bit of a tourist attraction and how it's become stuck that the the people that are supposed to lead that and lead the people with the ceremony are just doing the same ceremonies over and over again as if the world hasn't changed around them, as if the ceremony is taking place back before land started to belong to people in a way that it never had previously previously for for the tribes. So wondering uh, wondering what you guys think of, of how ceremony is, um, or rather, better question. By the end of the novel, Teo has been tasked to perform a ceremony to basically fix things, to to write things. And I, th- I think it's ultimately to write himself as much as anything. And by writing himself, he's also writing the world to a certain degree as, you know, he helps form the world as being a part of it. But does that sound right to y'all? Does that sound, or, or, or what what is the ceremony that Teo is tasked with performing um, to, to your mind? Lori, you want to start with that one? Well, I, I, I don't know. And maybe it's too much of a stretch, but could you almost make a generalization that all of these ceremonies are in some way a redemption? You know, that, that people and, and cultures and societies, even with the deer ceremony that I was talking about, um, in a way, it's, it's almost like asking forgiveness from the deer and from the earth that you had to inflict this violence upon it. You had to end its life, but that you're very grateful for that. And you try to honor the life and in honoring it kind of in other ways, preserve other living things on down the road. So I, I don't, I don't know, Robin, I don't want to, I don't want to in, infer that I know more about, you know, kind of Native American practices than, than, than I do or, or what the, the full meanings are. But, but the fact that the ceremony has to change with the times also seems to me to kind of allow a bit of flexibility in the redemptive act itself, right? Yeah, I think there's, I think that, that, that point of, you know, you, you've got, Auntie is a Catholic in, in Catholicism and many Christian beliefs and other religions, there are rituals and ceremonies. It's not an uncommon idea. If auntie is going to the Catholic church and confession and all the things that bring redemption, um, this is a familiar idea. And the idea that there's we've entered this time for for a, a faith or a belief system that is interested in an animate landscape, an animate interaction with other animate beings, um, that it's all alive and it's all in this pool of time and and spins around and it's it's way more engaged with the living world. And the idea that the sort of catastrophic time has come in the form of World War II and atomic weapons and 
the the people of the Laguna, Laguna Pueblo and the people around Teo and the others have sort of bought in to basically capitalism or Western expansion or using the land as an object rather than a partner. Uh, the the resources and beings that live on the land as objects rather than a partnership. <laughs> you know, the deer dies and you you put the pollen on the nose or the mush and say thank you and then grandpa dies. And at this speech last night with uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, she was talking about how in Potawatomi, the grandchild, great-grandchild and the great-grandparent have the same word. And you can't talk about a hummingbird without using you can't call it an it in in native that native language it has to be an animate it's because it's an either animate object or inanimate object so you've got this sort of belief system that is in direct conflict with this prevailing political system and that there has to be change in order to cope with it that to me seems the project of the book and so I don't know if I'm getting off subject here, but um, it just, that just seems like that's the project of the book is that in the times that we are in, you've got emo who's reacting to this changing times and you've got Teo who's re- and you've got Auntie and you've got Rocky. Everyone is responding in a different way. And Teo is the one who finds a path through to live, I think. Um Rocky doesn't, Emo doesn't, Pinky doesn't, not to be a spoiler alert or anything, but yeah, so I don't know. I, I guess I'm just kind of thinking out loud, not necessarily, I don't know. That's... Oh, we, we do that all the time. <laughs> one of the, I think, I think one of the joys of this podcast is, yeah. is that act of figuring out what we think about the book as we, yeah. as we chat about it. Um, I mean, it's sort of the question of like, what? Why do the Catholics need ceremony? They they have it too. Um, why do the Baptists have it? Why do the Jews have it? Why does we? Why do people have it? What is it? What is the function? We have. There's lots of atheists in the world, but maybe they have little acts of faith in their lives also. Like, what is an act of faith? What is it for? What do we need it for? And I think this is an argument that it's necessary. What you're saying, I mean, a lot of it is meaning making, right? I mean, it's ways of understanding and positioning yourself within the world. And I think what's interesting about Auntie being Catholic and her her discomfort with medicine men being brought in to attempt to help Teo, um, it's partially that she does. She already feels like her family is looked upon looked at a certain way within the community because of her sister, because of Teo. Um, part of why Rocky being the star he was, was so important to her was their placement within their, within their culture, within their, among their people, um, their town. And you could just say, I also get the feeling that like the Catholicism, her Catholicism is an uneasy fit. It doesn't go well with how they live and how they conduct their lives. It's just another Maybe it's what may what makes sense of the world for her, but it doesn't it doesn't really seem to have reflection in the day to day life beyond her reading uh, a devotional book. 
you know, the, the others are Uncle Josiah, even her husband, Robert, um, seems to adhere to a traditional practice that allows them to live, allows them to function on the land in, in a way that the Catholicism doesn't. The Catholicism is, I mean, it's a, it's a practice, it's a religious practice, but in some ways it feels somehow divorced from the day to day in this setting, in this context. And maybe that's just because, you know, it's not something that's going through Teo's head and that's where we spend most of our time. Maybe, you know, if we spent more, if we spent time inside of auntie's head, we'd have a better sense of, of how that interacts. But yeah, I mean, the Catholicism feels, it, it feels like another indication of the, the disjunction, if that's even a word, I'm not sure it is, um, between, between understanding the world and actually living in it and living within the world that they, that they live in on the reservation. Well, I, that's a good point, Tom, because I feel like of the family, auntie is in a lot of ways, the least generous of the family, certainly in her, um, in her uh, emotional detachment, um, when it comes to Teo, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't want them to adopt him at the beginning. She, it causes a fight with her and her husband. She, when he's growing up, she often says nasty, you know, kind of unkind things to him. Um, you know, rubbing it in that, you know, his mom was a horrible person and, um, you know, she gives all the nice things to her son. And even though they, they grow up in the same home and, um, for a lot of a lot of purposes they're they're like brothers she always tries to emphasize that no you know there's there's only one son in this home and it's not you so her faith is is interesting in, in that light too i think yeah and i mean i'm not a catholic and wasn't raised a catholic but i do sort of think of catholicism as a hierarchical structure power structure <laughs> And Auntie is definitely down at the bottom of that. And she's never going to get out of that. No matter what Rocky might have done as a football star, she's always going to be worried about, you know, what the what the Joneses are saying about her. And, and she's quite a sadist to him in some times. Like, she's mean to him as soon as anyone leaves the house and puts on this performance of liking him and being fair when other people are in the house or she tells him the cruel story of his mother naked. And um, the one thing I think is really interesting about what Leslie Marmot Silco does in this is that she is quite even handed with, she's quite critical of many of the Laguna people in the story. She's quite critical of the white people in the story. She's, quite critical. There's a lot of critique in this piece and it's quite evenly divided and um, which of course adds credibility to the piece. You don't feel like you're getting spoon fed her belief systems. And, um, but auntie is a, is a very important, she's a very, very important character because she's, I feel like she's got sort of simmering rage (laughs) And she's going to die like that. She's never, ever going to have a ceremony that will will soothe her as um, as as Teo finds a ceremony that soothes him. 
Yeah, on, on the point of um, even-handedness, there's a passage, um, page 191 of my edition, um, where Teo is in the middle of cutting a fence, and he reflects on um, the lie. And he goes, the lie. The liars had fooled everyone, white people and Indians alike. As long as people believed the lies, they would never be able to see what had been done to them or what they were doing to each other. And this is all done against like as he's cutting the wire and him wiping sweat off his face as and this cutting of the wires, you know, breaking through a barrier that's dividing up the land and keeping him away from his cattle, which are actually his by any any rule of that the white folks have imposed upon the land. They're his, but he has to steal them back functionally. But if the white people never looked beyond the lie to see that theirs was a nation built on stolen, stolen land, then they would never be able to understand how they had been used by the witchery. They would never know that they were still being manipulated by those who knew how to stir the ingredients together. White thievery and injustice spoiling up the anger and hatred that finally destroy the world. And then the last line of this little paragraph that is incredible. Um, the lies devoured white hearts, and for more than 200 years, white people had worked to fill their emptiness. They tried to glut the hollowness with patriotic wars and with great technology and the wealth it brought. And always they've been fooling themselves and they knew it. It's just, I don't know. I think it's even handed in reflecting on the idea that it's not just because they're, you know, no one here is terrible just because of who they are. It's about how they function within this larger system and how this system is in itself designed in many ways, to to destroy, to rip apart, to to do something unnatural uh, to people and to the the world they inhabit, and to divide people who shouldn't be divided. Because I feel like the underlying idea is that all people are brothers, <laughs> all beings are brothers, and this the witchery that then the white people coming a westward expansion and stealing land is a is is presented as a a spell basically a spell by these powers but i think in that way this book sits in the sort of part of the library that deals with the psychology of colonialism and the the psychology of guilt or the oppressor or imperialism, how does that mind work and how does it then function day to day? So, and I think that that's something that people are talking about way more now in the larger culture than they were when, when she wrote the book. So it's a book that really, really is got a place in, in the conversation right now. It's also it's just a, like that passage you read is is a is a hope it's a brutal passage but it's also kind of a hopeful passage. Um, wake up and see um, yourself, or as in this lecture last night they went to decolon is has your mind been colonized? Like decolonize your mind, and uh, I think that's what she's saying in this book, but way before people use that term that I know of anyway. And it's also, I mean, it's fascinating that this book comes out in 77, like on the heels of Vietnam. I mean, when we do have a term like PTSD, probably by then, and we are more aware of, I mean, World War II, even up, even today is still presented as the good war, right? Like that's still some of the ways it's talked about. And, you know, people came back from the war and they, 
they built the the great society and they went to work and it was 50s America, which completely ignores like why did motorcycle culture develop in the US in the like late 40s, early 50s? How did the beatniks really like there are a lot of people that came back from that war incredibly messed up and damaged in so many ways, but it was not, it didn't fit the narrative. And after Vietnam, the narrative had shifted enough to make room for it. And as you're saying, Robin, now people are more aware and better able to, to discuss and to take on this idea that there might be other ways, that there are other ways and that there, there are some very broken things about how this world functions. And but even with that, you still see a lot of the same fights and a lot of the same resistance to, to that very, that very idea. It feels, the book feels very relevant. I, I would, in some ways I would say timeless, but with its focus on the fragile web of the world, um, it almost feels, I don't know. I, I wasn't, that old in 77, but it almost feels more relevant now than ever. I mean, I think, I, I think ever, ever timely, maybe might be a good way of putting it forever timely. Like it, I mean, she's, this book is addressing and, and Silco is addressing a, an aspect of the human condition, um, an aspect of who we are, even if this isn't, even if the society changes, the draw will always be, will, probably always be there. And so this is, this is something that, I don't know, something that's going to be with us. So (laughs) bringing it to light, addressing it and presenting options, presenting alternatives, presenting weight other ways, um, which is where Teo winds up. Teo chooses other ways. And um, that's incredibly hopeful. yeah, uh, Robin. This, this is this is a this is a. I mean, this is this is not me wrapping it up. I'm just saying, holy crap, this is an incredible novel. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad you guys think so too. And I think the the change in that ceremony that you you brought up, Tom. I mean, one one thinks, what is the he, he thinks about it as going on that as he's going along, well, this is a bit different. I'm chasing these cattle around. And, and then he meets this woman and finds this deep love and the love is stronger than the suffering. And I just think that that's, and, and then you have this story going through of, of, uh, of the, the, all the little beings having to go, you know, you the hummingbird goes and the caterpillar goes and gets the object to clean the town and this long effort and a lot of beings are required to to heal the town in the story that we return to over and over again. And 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 yet for him there's this love that is central to the ceremony. And I just think especially now how startling to me that that is is that that's the most potent part of the ceremony is the love and and physical love but also love for a person who is wise and can bring knowledge and a new way of looking at things and 
it's just a, a startling beauty to that, especially how starkly violent and ugly so much of the, the book has to deal with that, that really, really hard material. So it's, it's just like this ray of sunshine that you're not, ex- I wasn't expecting the first time I encountered it. Thank you for, um, I'm going to say making us read this, but it was a real <laughs> pleasure to read it because, um, yeah, it's it, it feels like one of those books that needs to be in the world and and people more people need need to read it. I think it it's it's eye-opening. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for doing this podcast and for you guys are both incredible literary citizens and we need that. That's part of our ceremony, I think. Um doing what we love to the nth degree and sending it out to the world. And that's what you guys are doing. So thanks. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Robin. 